Hi, my name's Andy Chamberlain. I'm a writer and creative writing tutor, and you are listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt, the podcast that gives you practical, accessible advice that you can apply straight away to your own writing. And welcome to episode 58 of the Creative Writers Toolbelt. Today, we're going to look at point of view. Deciding on the point of view of your story is one of the really important authorial decisions that you'll need to make for your work. So what is point of view? Well, simply put, point of view relates to the view from which the story is told, and it divides into three basic types. There's first person, where the protagonist tells the story directly to the reader. The narrative uses words like I and me and my. The second person, which is very rarely used, tells the story as if the reader were in the action. It uses words like you and your. And third person tells the story from outside of the character's direct point of view. And that uses words like he and she and they. Now, in this podcast, we're going to look in a bit more detail at what we mean by point of view, why it's important, and what are the options for you with your work in terms of authorial decisions that you're going to need to make. And of course, there'll be plenty of examples. As a bit of context, these words like I and me and you and they and he and she all stand in for the names of people. So actually they're standing in for nouns and because of that they're called pronouns. The point of view that you use will define the kinds of pronouns that appear in your work. So let's look first of all then at an example of a passage in the first person. Here the writer uses pronouns like I and me and my so that you see things directly from the protagonist's point of view. In this short passage, Julie visits her elderly mother. She's rung the doorbell but got no answer, and so now she's a bit worried. I force the door open and enter the room. The first thing that hits me is the smell. She's obviously had tuna or some other oily fish for dinner. Then there's the heat, of course. That boiler is always busy, even in the summer. Canned laughter from the TV tells me that she's watching one of those afternoon sitcoms that ease half an hour of your life away in the most painless way possible. I walk in and see her in the old wingback chair. It's positioned to catch a bit of the sunlight in the morning. She glances up at me. Julie, she says, I'm just watching the real shoppers of Sun Valley. So I see. Didn't you hear the doorbell? Oh, Julie, I don't hear anything when this is on. You mean you choose not to hear anything when this is on, I think. Now you can see here that the action takes place entirely from Julie's point of view. We see what she's doing, we can hear her thoughts, and the references to her use pronouns like I and me. We're in Julie's head, we have an intimate view of her and her actions and her feelings about the situation that she's in. So notice in this case how the author's choice to use first person has actually defined not only the content of the narrative but also its tone and voice. Let's listen to the same passage again, but this time it's written in the second person. You force the door open and enter the room. The first thing that hits you is the smell. She's obviously had tuna or some other oily fish for a dinner. Then there's the heat, of course. That boiler is always busy, even in the summer. Canned laughter from the TV tells you she's watching one of those afternoon sitcoms that ease a half an hour of your life away in the most painless way possible. You walk in and see her in the old wingback chair. It's positioned to catch a bit of the sun in the morning. She glances up at you. Julie, she says, I'm just watching the real shoppers of Sun Valley. So I see, you say. Didn't you hear the doorbell? Oh, Julie, I don't hear anything when this is on. You mean you choose not to hear anything when this is on, you think. 
with that change in these little pronouns, not only have the words changed, but the whole tone of the passage has changed. The author has made the reader the main character of the story. Julie is not now telling us her story. Rather, we've become Julie. And this is our mother that we've gone to visit. And when the writer uses the second person point of view, the reader has to take on the responsibility of being the character. So finally, what happens if we change the passage again to third person point of view? Well, in this case, this is what we get. Julie forces the door open and enters the room. The first thing that hits her is the smell. Her mother has obviously had tuna or some other oily fish for dinner. Then there's the heat, of course. That boiler is always busy, even in the summer. Canned laughter from the TV tells Julie that her mother's watching one of those afternoon sitcoms that ease a half an hour away of your life in the most painless way possible. She walks in and sees her mother in the old wing-back chair. It's positioned to catch a bit of sun in the morning. Her mother glances up. Julie, I'm just watching the real shoppers of Sunny Valley. So I see, says Julie. Didn't you hear the doorbell? Oh, Julie, I don't hear anything when this is on. You mean you choose not to hear anything when this is on, she thinks. The narrative is a little more complex because in the previous two examples, she definitely meant Julie's mother. But this time, she could refer to either Julie or her mother. So the writers had to be a little bit more specific about who's doing some action and who's talking. And note how the tone of the piece has changed again. It isn't as personal as the first two pieces. We're now listening to a story rather than participating in it in some way. With the third person, we seem to lose some of the intimacy and some of the urgency of the story. And that might make you wonder why any writer would want to use the third person. The reason, of course, is that whilst the first person point of view and the second person point of view give us depth in terms of intimacy with the character, they're also very narrow. First and second person point of view doesn't let you explore a range of plot lines and a range of characters very easily. For that, you need third person point of view. Even within just third-person point of view, there are different subtypes. In the example I read, we're still hearing from things from Julie's point of view, one person's point of view. We're close to Julie and our view is quite limited. And in fact, this sort of style of writing tends to be called close or limited third-person point of view. If, however, we had a big cast of characters and an epic plot, we'd want to be able to move from character to character and from plot line to plot line, taking more of a distant point of view. In fact, this style is sometimes called the distant or omniscient third person point of view. So let's explore a little bit further why this decision about point of view is so important. We've already seen that point of view is important because it changes the voice and the tone of the narrative. Now that means it's a tool that you can use The choice you make about point of view needs to be informed and needs to be in line with the effect that you want to achieve, the voice that you want to use, the story you're telling and the characters you want to present to the reader. Let's have a look at first person point of view again. Writing in the online magazine Writer's Digest back in 2008, Nancy Cress gave us this advice. In first person, Everything we see, hear and experience about the story action comes to us through the first person narrator, the I character. This person is telling the story to us, describing events and his or her individual reactions to those events. It's the latter phenomenon that is the great strength of first person. Moving from description of what the character witnesses to her thoughts about those things is perfectly natural. It happens to each of us all the time within our own heads. Doing it in fiction creates an intimacy in storytelling that third person can seldom match. If you want the reader to feel intimate with your character, to know what they're thinking as well as what they're doing, choose first person point of view. 
If your story focuses on one single character and doesn't move across multiple storylines, choose first person point of view. If you want the pace of your work to be fast and the tone to feel close and personal, again, first person point of view is the right choice. The big problem with first person point of view, as we've already alluded to, is that it is literally just the point of view of your main character. And that main character has to be in every scene. And we, the readers, have to see everything through their eyes. If you're working on a big story with multiple storylines and multiple protagonists, it's just not going to work. Now, there are plenty of examples of great first-person point-of-view literature. J.D. Salinger's classic, The Catcher in the Rye, for example, starts with these words. If you really want to hear about it, the first thing you'll probably want to know is where I was born and what my lousy childhood was like and how my parents were occupied and all before they had me and all that David Copperfield kind of crap. But I don't feel like going into it if you want to know the truth. In the first place, that stuff bores me. And in the second place, my parents would have about two hemorrhages apiece if I told anything pretty personal about them. The author uses the intimacy of first-person point of view to complement the voice of the story and to take us straight into the mind and personality and thinking of the protagonist. Now, occasionally, an author will use second-person point of view. It's an unusual and difficult style because essentially you're saying to the reader, you are this character. And if the reader buys that, that's fine. But if they cease to believe in that character and in being that character at some level, then the illusion's going to be broken and the reader is lost to the story. In her book, The Fifth Season, N.K. Jemison presents three storylines with three characters and one of them, a woman called Essen, is presented in the second person. Jemison used the second person with a character that she thought people would have difficulty empathising with, a traumatised, middle-aged woman of colour. Jemison wanted readers to have empathy for Essen, but she also wanted readers to have a very strong sense of the anger in this character. She wanted readers to understand quite deeply that Essen's pain separates her from the rest of the world. There's a disconnectedness there that the author wanted the readers to appreciate. And this is what Jemison says about her authorial decision to use second person point of view for this character. I expected people to hate Essen. She's so many things that readers dislike, sight unseen and story unread. A middle-aged mother, a collaborator, a revolutionary, a mass murderer, a woman who refuses to be sexy or nice. She's traumatised for much of the fifth season and she displays this in ways that don't tug at the heartstrings because trauma doesn't usually look sympathetic. It's angry, it's distant, it's violent and sometimes harmful. I wanted readers to feel this intensely, but I also wanted them to feel the disassociation of her, the not all here of her, which is why I chose the second person. Here's a little example of how Jemison uses this approach. You're on the trail. This is what you are, this small and petty creature. This is the bedrock of your life. Father Earth is right to despise you, but do not be ashamed. You are a monster, but you are also great. And in just those few lines, the author has pulled us into the fact that we are the ones on the trail and it is we, the readers, who are at once petty and despised and great. And it's in no small part to Jemison's choice of second person point of view that this association works, that this character comes alive for us so personally. Now, as I've said, the big problem with second person point of view is that it forces the reader to be the character and only that character. If the reader believes that, Fine, if the reader doesn't believe in that character and can't connect with them in this very intimate way, then the power of using second-person point of view is broken. 
Now this leaves us with third person point of view. This is where the main character or characters of the narrative are referred to using words like he or she, him or her or they. And as I've mentioned, third person point of view can split into close or limited point of view at one end of the spectrum and distant or omniscient point of view at the other. Close or limited third person point of view is very much like first person point of view in that it usually focuses on a single character and can give the benefit that first person point of view gives, namely that the reader will feel a level of identification with the character. A great example of this is the Harry Potter series where almost every scene features and is told from the point of view of Harry himself. Another example, in The Book Thief by Marcus Suzak, the author uses close third-person point of view to present the story of Liesel, a girl living with a foster family in Munich during the Second World War. Here's how the author describes her reaction to seeing her parents dead after a bombing raid. Liesel did not run or walk or move at all. Her eyes had scoured the humans and stopped hazily when she noticed the tall man and the short wardrobe woman. That's my mama. That's my papa. The words were stapled to her. They're not moving, she said quietly. They're not moving. Perhaps if she stood still long enough, it would be they who moved, but they remained motionless for as long as Liesel did. I hope you can see in that short passage that the author is using the third person point of view. He's talking about Liesel, he's telling her story, but he's also doing this in a very close way so that we, the readers, can identify with the emotions and the feelings of the character as well as her actions. At the other end of the spectrum, we have distant or omniscient third person point of view. And with this, the author takes us up above the action and the characters so that we can see the sweep of what's going on. What we lose in depth, we gain in breadth. And it's worth mentioning that all types of third-person point of view are in a sense omniscient, in that the writer is, to some greater or lesser extent, taking us above everything and out of the characters so that we can see what's happening above all the action. This omniscient, distant approach works well for epic tales that span multiple plot lines and characters. The emotions and feelings of the characters can still be presented, but this is definitely a story told to the reader rather than them experiencing the emotion and life of the characters. Some of the great novels of the 19th century, as well as some of those doorstoppers of the 20th and 21st century, use this point of view. And this most readily accommodates exposition, as we can see from those great novels of the Victorian era, where musings and description were expected in a novel, but would most likely be subject to the editor's red pen today. For example, Charles Dickens' novel, Our Mutual Friend, is written in this point of view, and it starts like this. In these times of ours, though concerning the exact year there is no need to be precise, a boat of dirty and disreputable appearance with two figures in it floated on the Thames between Southwark Bridge, which is of iron, and London Bridge, which is of stone, as an autumn evening was closing in. The figures in this boat were those of a strong man with ragged, grizzled hair and a sun-brown face, and a dark girl of 19 or 20, sufficiently like him to be recognisable as his daughter. The girl rode, pulling a pair of skulls very easily, the man with the rudder line slack in his hands, and his hands loose in his waistband, kept an eager lookout. Now this approach allows the writer to present a wide cast, a broad canvas, and it suits the big story with many characters in it. But what you gain with breadth you lose with depth. We cannot see deeply into the minds and hearts of these characters. We cannot feel what they feel 
in the way we would do if the story was written in the first person point of view. So let's conclude with an overview and some final thoughts on this subject. First of all, point of view is an important authorial decision. Each point of view option has its strengths and weaknesses. Understanding those strengths and weaknesses will allow you to decide which style will work best for your story. The choice you make will colour the tone and voice of your work. So choose a point of view option that will work for you. And essentially that decision boils down to whether you want to be narrow and deep in terms of your treatment of the characters in the story or broad and shallow. Second thing, establish the point of view early and stick to it. Once the reader is settled into the point of view you're presenting, don't change it around. You'll throw the reader out of the story. If you must have different points of view in your story, make sure that you stick to one particular point of view for each scene. Third thing, don't use too many points of view, even in distant third person. Otherwise, your reader might start to struggle to hold all of these differing viewpoints in their head. And if you do use different points of view, make sure that your characters are clear and distinct. So that's it for this episode. I hope you found this useful. Today I have quoted from the following works. The Fifth Season by N.K. Jemison, published by Orbit. The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, published by Penguin. Our Mutual Friend by Charles Dickens, which is in the public domain. And The Book Thief by Marcus Suzak, published by Transworld. I have also referred to Nancy Cress's article, Six Steps to Choosing the Right Point of View, which can be found at the Writer's Digest website, www.writersdigest.com, and N.K. Jemison's blog, titled Tricking Readers into Acceptance, which is at her own website, www.nkjemison.com. I'll be back in a couple of weeks' time with the next regular episode. In the meantime, I'll get some show notes for this episode up on Pinterest. Go to pinterest.com and look up the Creative Writers Toolbelt. We have a group on Goodreads. You're very welcome to join us and join the conversation there. Please do drop me a line anytime. It's andrew at andrewjchamberlain.com. That's all for now. As ever, thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. (music) 